HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And again, we have another half-hour journey through culinary history. And you know, here we are at a radio network pretty much devoted entirely to food. And it's not just the radio network devoted to food. There's a television network devoted to food. There are magazines and websites devoted to food and restaurants, newspapers with food devoted dedicated food and, and dining sections and even apps for your apply your uh, tablets and your iPads for whose sole purpose is locating the right restaurant or the food shop or the food truck or the push cart is this a new phenomenon mm, according to my guest outside of the new technology of course uh, according to my guest today Cindy Lobel it is definitely not a new phenomenon. Cindy has published a book called Urban Appetites, Food and Culture in 19th Century New York. Cindy uses this phenomenon of food to explore social and cultural trends and history and very interesting um, uh, facts that come out that make us not a whole lot different from New York City in the 1890s. Cindy is a cultural historian who teaches at Lehman College of City University of New York. She researches her interests in her urban development, consumer culture, and the history of New York City. So, Cindy, welcome to the show. And according to all that you've written, you're telling us that you are what you buy to eat. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I think uh, in many ways the, the old adage, you are what you eat, and you are where you eat. Ah, where um, you eat. <laughs> uh, and where you get your food, you know, really does reflect a lot on uh, on kind of who we are and, and also what we want to project. And that is not such a new thing. I think that goes back. Well, you really went back um, 
pretty much to the beginning to mm. explore the origins of of food, the food systems in New York City, and then it just and and well, I'll let you tell us the how it just blossomed. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. So the book really focuses on the 19th century, uh, and uh, the uh, but from the beginning, New York has a commercial food network. Uh, New York is a is a is a commercial port even in the uh, 1600s, and so uh, there's not really a lot of in in New Amsterdam or in early New York not a lot of farming uh, happening in the city proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the food is coming in from you know outside, although outside is not very far in the very small city of the 1600s. But in the 19th century, things really change pretty dramatically from the beginning of the 19th century to the end of the 19th century, whereas really up to that point, uh, New York City grew and its food system grew and changed a bit, but uh, some things really remained the same for, through really through the 18th century and then really changed rapidly over the what course of the What in particular remained the same? Well, for example, the public market system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, f- f- the, the Dutch established public markets in the 17th century and they continue through the 18th century. Um, you had about six public markets for much of the 18th century, and that's the case in the beginning of the the 1800s as well. Um, And over the course of the 19th century, the public market system really transforms from being the place where all New Yorkers get their food and where all fresh food in New York has to be sold to being really a wholesale uh, place where uh, that supplies not just New York City's needs, but the needs really of the nation and beyond. And uh, as the 19th century progresses, more and more uh, householders individual New Yorkers are getting their foods in retail food shops that actually are also stocked from the public market. So that's an example of a big change that happens over the 19th century that really was, I mean, not static, but more similar in the uh, early 19th century to the 17th century than it would right. be to the 1890s. Right. Kind of a condensed view. Yeah. Um, and, and then but the, the onset of... Um, Food establishments, dining establishments. You, Cindy, just to let our uh, listeners know, you can scroll through my past shows. And Cindy was on the show. I think it was like about a year and a half ago. Yeah, it was two a years ago. Years. Yeah, yeah. And we talked about the um, early beginnings of restaurants in, in New York City. And you were at that point working on the book, That's I know, right. and, and doing a lot of research on early restaurants in New York City. And interesting because one would think, being you know, the early city, that. It had the first restaurant in America, but it did not. Right? That's right. Yes, that's another big difference, right? Restaurants. Yeah. I always say this, that people think that New York was born with a Zagat guy, you know, <laughs> and that, of course, is not the case. Restaurants have a history, and there really weren't any freestanding restaurants in New York until the 19th century. Um, there were taverns, but they were attached to lodging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the, the first restaurant... <laughs> This is controversial. Uh, But the first restaurant, we think, the first documented one was actually in Boston. And Mm. it was a French restaurant. And and by restaurant, I mean a freestanding restaurant. And, of course, the first American restaurant. The first restaurants are in in Paris. Yeah. Uh, But the first American restaurant, we think, was in Boston. And in in the 1790s, a lot of these French chefs from the court come to the United States and open restaurants. And so uh, that was uh, the case for for Julien's restaurateur in Boston. Mm -hmm. Uh, But New York definitely... um, uh, finesses the restaurant, and a lot of really important restaurant landmarks happen in New York City. Right, we had Delmonico's as the first, which we had. Mm-hmm. We had the I had the privilege of having the the current chef on, and we talked a lot about the history of Delmonico's, as well as I, I mentioned before, you did on your last show, and Andy Smith on his book of New York food. Right, and 
all it takes in New York is open one and the rest will come, right? Exactly. (laughs) So they all followed in in quick order. That's right. Yeah, well, the DeMonico brothers were very very savvy in recognizing that there was really a market for a freestanding restaurant where you could get a hot meal uh, without being attached to a hotel or to a tavern. Uh, And they certainly... uh, helped to develop fine dining in New York and in the United States at large. Uh, but yes, it, they were not alone <laughs> uh, at all. There were, were many restaurants, and especially the 1830s, you see a real boom in restaurant uh, development in New York from just a handful to, by the 1850s, to thousands of, yeah. of kind of very, very different restaurant options, a whole range of restaurant yeah. options. Uh, and, and you, it's interesting because not... In, in realizing how you use this to to view um, social and cultural trends and, and people have to eat right mm-hmm. but this suddenly there are all these new options of ways for them to eat and not just restaurants but there are of course all the little food stalls and push carts and, and vendors different kinds of sellers that's what right. is and what did this tell us about and, and when well what did it tell us about um, the economic differences and and the cultural differences. Yeah, so in many ways, I, th- I think that restaurants, well, not in many ways, actually, this is sort of a central argument that I have, is that uh, the rise of restaurants is really tied to the, the growth of the city. And so they kind of follow two tracks. You have the restaurants that are catering to commuters, which is a new thing in 19th century New York. Up Commuting, to that point. Right? Exactly. <laughs> up to the, you, don't, you didn't have commuters until really the 1830s when the city goes from a walking city to a place where you can live in one place and take some form of transportation to get to uh, your work. And so home and, and, and office really are separated. And so there's this track of commuter restaurants that really cater to businessmen who live in the kind of leafy precincts on the edges of the city, like Greenwich Village yeah. and Gramercy Park, uh, which now is really you know downtown New York in Manhattan, um, and then uh, and are coming downtown to Wall Street, the Wall Street area for work. And then a second kind of track of restaurants is the hotel restaurants that uh, that open up, um, and then freestanding restaurants that open up to cater to travelers and tourists. And then from there, yes, you have this very, very large range. And very quickly, they start to sort so that a restaurant is not just a place to go and get something to eat, uh, but really a place um, that can be an expression of status for the person who is, who's dining there. Uh, uh, last time uh, we spoke, we talked about ladies' restaurants. Right, and right. Uh, and uh, the restaurant is a kind of marker or, uh, or could be a marker for a kind of disreputable, as a disreputable place disreputable place for a woman who is concerned about her reputation. And so you have a sort of track of restaurants that open up as ladies' restaurants for for middle-class women who are concerned about their reputation. It's a kind of comfortable place to dine for them. And then, yes, you have push carts, and you have um, uh, restaurants that are along the docks that cater more to uh, a cheaper clientele or or a a poorer clientele. Uh, You have the cheap and nasty restaurant that comes up uh, that's, uh, you know, really... uh, uh, you know, you grab a quick bite, and it's not exactly uh, the most sanitary uh, environment. So there's a very, very big range that emerges over the course of the century. All right. Um, you even uh, in your uh, in the book and your research, you you also looked at food shops, not just um, restaurants, but places, gourmet shops, and places where people, or just places where people might just get their regular groceries. And through this, you could do an entire you know, social and cultural study of the population at the time, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, this is another thing that uh, is, was a little bit surprising and I think really interesting uh, that we, 
we think of this idea of geography and uh, food quality being very closely tied together as a kind of a modern thing, right? Food deserts, right. or the idea that you know. Uh, what, uh, that class and geography go together in terms of de- de- determining the quality of one's food supply. But that actually really does go back to the 19th century, because as I mentioned, as the city grows and spreads, uh, people are uh, living farther away, not only from where they work, but also from these public markets that were so important in supplying the food needs of New Yorkers really for its entire history up until the 19th century. And so you have these private food shops that start to emerge that cater to people in their neighborhoods. But another thing that's happening with the spread of the city is that you have the development of class neighborhoods. So you have poor neighborhoods and middle class neighborhoods and wealthy neighborhoods. And not surprisingly, the food shops that are in the you know wealthy and middle class neighborhoods are um, are uh, have a much higher quality of food and are more expensive than the food shops that are in the tenement districts and the working-class neighborhoods and the slums of New York. And so you do see a real disparity in terms of the quality of the food supply that people are getting in their neighborhood food shops. And what's changed, right? That's right. Yeah, it's really, it does, it has a long history. (laughs) Right. Uh, What about the, um, all these rules came up and a lot of, I guess, after the, the, um, start of so many markets and, and restaurants. There are a lot of corruption, a little, uh, some dirty dealings, and and then, of course, issues, as you mentioned before, of sanitation. You know, who's going to protect the public from unhealthy um, practices? Uh, and all this can be viewed through food? Yeah. Everything can be viewed through food, of course. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh uh, that's a big part of it as well. Part of the growth of the city and of the um, of the um, of changing regulations in terms of food. Because this is another thing: is that uh, what you actually have over uh, from the the colonial period to the 19th century is uh, not greater regulation of food. That comes a little bit later mm. in the 20th century, but deregulation of, of food and the food supply. So uh, when you had these public markets, that were they were regulated by the city, and they were the only place. And this is not just New York. This is the case in, in all of the colonial cities. You mm-hmm. had a public market system. It was regulated by the municipal authorities. And, uh, and the markets were really seen as a public good. It was really uh, seen that uh, the city had to regulate it, the patrician government had to regulate these markets to make sure that people were not being cheated in the market, or that they weren't being sold uh, food that was going to make them sick. Right. Um, that's where like the oysters not being being sold only in months that have ours, right, ours. <laughs> uh, comes from. So these were actually regulations that were on the books, but in the 19th century, a lot of those regulations fall out of out of the way. So uh, probably the the biggest one is meat. Fresh meat had to be sold in the public markets, and that was a law. Uh, and uh, butchers were licensed by the city. But as uh, as the the city grows, you have these unlicensed butchers who can't actually get a space in the limited stalls in the public markets, and so they start to kind of open up these illegal. Uh, markets, illegal meat markets in the neighborhoods. And eventually, the city actually follows um, uh, the practice and deregulates the, the, the markets and allows for butchers to sell meats in private meat shops. And so you start to see this real explosion after 1843, when that deregulation happens, of private meat shops. Um, and that, you know, it's good for the butchers, 
because they can actually open up a shop now. They can legally sell, right. right? But it's not necessarily so good for the quality of the meat supply because you have this deregulation that goes along with a lack of. Although, I mean, although it brought meat to some of these neighborhoods that had no access to it before, yeah. So yes, yeah. Arguably, you could say it expands access, yeah. but also, of course, what you have is Tammany Hall, right? I mean, yeah. in New York, you have this very, very corrupt, <laughs> as you mentioned, political uh, uh, system and very, very corrupt political uh, regime, and uh, they really start to look at the markets as a place to kind of uh, line their pockets mm-hmm. rather as a place to regulate, and so uh, they really don't. They really kind of ignore them, and the markets get really backed up, and the food that's in the market spoils, and um, and there are a lot of sanitary issues. Right. The whole story of of um, going to an interesting show on markets that I did with um, uh, I'll think of his name mm-hmm. um, oh Gergi Bage oh yeah, yes. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. He, he really he's, he's, he's the meat man yeah and, say, yeah. Well, yeah and if you you know the, the wise shopper who ha- who could went out early in the day and shopped early in the day because by the end of the day you didn't want what was there that's right, right. yeah and that, that is the case well before the markets are deregulated even I, I was going to say that before also you know it's not it's not that there's in, not inequality in New York before the, the markets change um, there certainly is and yeah the, the earlier you go the better the food and the more expensive it is as well and so there it definitely is even when everybody's shopping in the public markets for their food there definitely is uh, class differential that's happening in those markets but everybody has to shop in the public markets for their food mm-hmm. until uh, you have this explosion of retail food shops, and so it, it, it there is there's not again there's not equality, but there is um, uh, more more of a rough equality before than there is later. Right. Um, the whole with your title of your book, Urban Appetites, mm-hmm. which I love, and, and it's interesting because with this explosion of restaurants, um, uh, food vendors, and more markets, people of course are thinking more about food and not just their daily needs but you know you start thinking about ooh exciting types i mean new york had an incredible array of of foods and food offerings that's right. yeah and new york really um not only do we see all these changes that are happening in New York in terms of its food supply, that all this emergence of the kind of roots of the system that we have inherited, that all happens over the 19th century. Another thing that happens is that New York really solidifies this uh, image that it still has today as this center of gastronomy, as the gastronomic capital of the United States. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's a place where people want to come and they want to explore the food landscape and the, yeah. um, you know, the exciting things that you can only find in New York. And of course, as New York becomes an increasingly immigrant city, you have all of these uh, you know this very cosmopolitan food uh, system and food options, and you know you can have breakfast in Germany and have lunch in <laughs> in France and have dinner in China, and you know people are very excited about that uh, as uh, as things get more complex. Right, and before long, this all traveled then to so many other cities. I mean, they, then they took that as a model and and. And you just all you have to do is look at your newsstand and and see the different cities with their food magazines, and it's you know it's it's really exactly yeah you see that so early really in New York I mean really by the mid nineteenth century where you'll see um, uh, you know. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky has opened a restaurant on the New York style or, or, or <laughs> serving oysters, you know, serving New York oysters or uh, or um, a, a restaurant that could uh, compete with Delmonico's or even the name Delmonico's that you see in restaurants all around uh, the country that, you know, New York definitely is serving as a model in that way. Uh, well, it's really um, there are a couple of things I want to ask you about about this topic and and your research, which we will explore further after we take a short break. Great. 
Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. On a taste of the past, and I'm talking with Cindy Lobel, whose new book is Urban Appetites: Food and Culture in 19th Century New York. Urban Appetites, I love it. You know, it's interesting that you somebody you mentioned, oh, you you mentioned in the beginning of your book, um, the um, you gave a wonderful quote from a New York journalist, uh, Junius Henri Brown. And I don't, to paraphrase, he said something like, to a stranger coming to New York, it would seem like everybody's constantly engaged right. in eating. And I have to tell you, you know, when I first moved to New York, it was, I just, I would, I was hungry all the time because it just seemed like everything was about, there was food on the street, people were eating all the time, either even on the street or right. you know, all in, the senses. In, in, yes, everywhere. the sight, the smell. The smell and the sight and the food. And, and it's so true today as it was. And this was, and he wrote this in, what, 1869 or uh-huh. something? Wow. That's right, yeah. Yeah, that it's just perpetually engaged in eating. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's it's amazing that, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering, we, we keep talking about where does the rise in obesity come That's from? Right. Like, is it because we're always eating? It's not from New York. <laughs> not from New York, no. But And when we're not engaged in eating, we're engaged in talking about eating. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What's, you know, what's your next meal going to be? Or what did you eat last night? Or what? <laughs> It is. It is great, and as and as goes New York City, as we said before, go all the other major cities. And yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I definitely think that you know, if 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 we if we think about New York as a place of you know of a diverse and um, uh, and uh, and kind of. Uh, constantly shifting food uh, center of food and eating I do think that we're seeing that much much more even mm-hmm. you know all around all around the, the country but wait we'd have to go back to Europe <laughs> <laughs> yes or China yes, or, <laughs> yes. No, New York doesn't originate right. uh, yes uh, uh, those things but I think we're seeing that spread around around the United States as well mm-hmm. you know kind of one thing that intrigued me is that you and a lot of a lot of the topics um, intrigued me that you cover in your book, and it's just um, uh, grist for so many great conversations. Is that you? But you did talk about um, very small private food shops and basement diners and kind of things that were behind the scenes that started to take off, uh, much like we're even seeing today, private dining clubs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did you go? What, how did you go about finding out about these things? Where did you find evidence of these if they were so hidden and so secret? In other words, what was your the process for your research? Yeah, so the, this kind of research is definitely uh, 
com- you know needle in the haystack. It's mm. hard to, to to be completely comprehensive uh, because, for one thing, you really do have to do archival research when you're studying uh, food and eating in the 19th century because. Anybody who's gone through those old diaries and letters, like the letters of John Pintard, for example, has culled out all the mention of food. Mm. <laughs> not all of it, of course, not all of it, but a lot of it, because um, because they were concentrating more on you know political developments or on things that seemed bigger in the 1950s and 60s when they were editing those collections. Or the diary of Philip Hone is another one. Uh, so it's, you really do have to do a lot of archival work and really a lot. I looked at a lot of newspapers. They did the newspapers loved to talk about food mm. and uh, and and the restaurant was so new. You know that that was a very exciting thing. The New York Times would cover um, all these different restaurants that you could eat in, and they talk about the basement restaurants and they talk about all the various different immigrant groups and the kinds of um, of uh, immigrant cuisines that are emerging in New York and the hybrids and the fusions even then uh, <laughs> that you're seeing uh, so, so and and also diaries and letters um, I uh, I used uh, uh, I looked at the diary of John Pintard. I also looked at the diary of a, of a woman who's not quoted nearly as much, um, Carolyn Dustin, who who wrote all about all the various food vendors that she went to and the little groceries. And she had dozens of them that serviced her food needs. And so uh, it's really fun research. You get to read letters <laughs> and uh, and people's you know private papers. Um, and I and I looked at a lot of the archives in New York and and and, and outside of New York. Um, to find that kind of, again, needle in the haystack research. I mean, the fact that somebody in that period of time, we're talking about early 19th century, would even write about, would write it down. Um, Like this woman, you said Dustin, Mm -hmm. um, she was just a, a... was she a socialite? A she was. A, she was a, a what we would today probably call an upper middle class woman. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, she she did charity visiting and uh, she had a home in the village and uh, she managed a household with some servants and so and she kept you know she kept really really great records in her diary of where she was getting the food and how much she was paying for it and. Um, I mean, certainly there are records because we have, you know, uh, records of people who didn't have food, people who needed, the, you know, to to um, be in food lines to get food. So a lot of there's a lot of reason, a lot of available material on that. But actually, just gee, I went to this wonderful gourmet shop. I mean, that's that's not as there's not as that's much. right. And today too, I mean, we we as we said, we talk a lot about food, but we don't really write that kind of stuff down necessarily. Yeah. I mean. Pintard was really interesting, John Pintard, because he he's he's a um, a former banker who lived in New York in the early 19th century and had a very long correspondence with his daughter who had moved to New Orleans. And those letters are all at the New York Historical Society, and they've been um, they've been really really well uh, collected and and uh, and transcribed. Uh, and he is—he does write in his letters to his daughter about going to the markets and what food is available and how much it costs. And he's a real epicure. And, mm. and he really, you know, he, he he would get very excited when the first strawberries came into the markets, and he would talk about that. And so he did—he did write about that. But but most people really don't spend yeah, a lot of and that time. Valuable information about what to know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, yeah. And, and as we think that food journalism came late, it's that's I mean, yes, the acceptable food journalism, you know, but writing about food was not as you say, it was called out, it wasn't considered important. Yes. Right. That's and right. And that what a shame because as you say, it's a way it's a, a lens through which we can view 
culture, um, culture and, and social trends and changes. And yes, and I think I think definitely uh, scholars, various different kinds of scholars, have become much more have taken food much more seriously as a subject of study over the last twenty or thirty years, and so we definitely are in uh, a, a really good moment for that. Right, uh, indeed. Right now, indeed. And uh, I was thinking, oh, you brought to mind um, is it Thomas Bay, the the butcher who. Then went on to write, and he had yes, Thomas DeVoe. DeVoe, DeVoe, not DeVoe. Wonderful uh, letters and diaries yes. and descriptions of the markets. Well, Thomas DeVoe's market book and market assistant are absolutely invaluable resources. I mean, he had two books. One was a kind of history of the public markets. He did one for New York, and he also did one for New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. Uh, and then he has another one that was called The Market Assistant that was kind of a guide to going to the market, and that listed everything that would be in the markets at any time, you know, throughout the year. The season, it's reflected on the seasonality in the markets and just lists and lists and lists, really, of anything that you could find in the markets of, of, of New York and, and other cities. Hmm. Well, as, as they were, were important for their time, this book that you've written is important for our time. I think, you know, it's interesting. If you were, bl- if one were blind to, you know, to the dates and just heard some of the information coming out of them, you'd be hard-pressed to place this in a particular era, you know, because the information is so, so common to what we're experiencing today. Yes, I certainly think, I mean, I say this, that it is not, we do not have the same thing in, in New York today as we did, or in the United States as we did in the, 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 the there are a lot of very big differences, especially in terms of industrialization of food yeah, and some well. of the problems that we're facing. But I, I definitely think that the roots of a lot of these developments certainly can be found in the 19th century, which we didn't, you know, a lot of people don't realize that. You know, they, we think it's maybe the 1950s, um, but really a lot of the roots of, of what we're dealing with today are laid down much earlier than, than we right. previously thought. Yeah, I mean, we've create, we created <laughs> huge other problems. And then, as you say, industrialization, the onset of refrigeration. I mean, so many things occurred that really did change the scene or the, or the landscape, as you mentioned, of, of the food scene. But still, it's it's, you know... Living in a city, it's a problem. People have to eat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, you know, when people ask me what, uh, what surprised me most uh, in doing the research for this book and writing this book, I, I, I think that what surprised me most is how many parallels there are to today. Hmm. Uh, you know, that it, it's, it's a historical uh, study, but it definitely has um, resonance with what, what, what we're seeing today. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Well, I, I commend you on. on all the wonderful information and always good to talk to you because your information is always so solid and so (laughs) good. Thank you, you too. And I love, and and I just love that, you know, that it kind of validates what a lot of us do, that using food as a lens to look at culture and, and social trends and history. Cindy LaBelle and her book is Urban Appetite, Food and Culture in 19th Century New York. Thank you so much. Thank you, Linda. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to A Taste of the Past and I'm Linda Palaccio, your host. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.